2 Kings chapter 4. In your pew Bibles, it can be found on page 261. So if you would, please turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 4. The wife of a man from the company of the prophets cried out to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that he revered the Lord. But now his creditor is coming to take my two boys as his slaves. Elisha replied to her, How can I help you? Tell me, what do you have in your house? Your servant has nothing at all, she said, except a little oil. Elisha said, Go around and ask all your neighbors for empty jars. Don't ask for just a few. Then go inside and shut the door behind you and your sons. Pour oil into all the jars as as each is filled. Put it to one side. She left him and afterwards shut the door behind her and her sons. They brought the jars to her and she kept pouring. When all the jars were full, she said to her son, Bring me another one. But he replied, There is not a jar left. Then the oil stopped flowing. She went and told the man of God, and he said, Go sell the oil and pay your debts. You and your sons can live on what is left. One day Elisha went to Shunem, and a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, he stopped her to eat. She said to her husband, I know that this man who often comes our way is a holy man of God. Let's make him a small room on the roof and put it put in, in a bed and a table, a chair and a lamp for him. Then he can stay there whenever he comes to us. One day when Elisha came, he went up to his room and lay down there. He said to his servant Gehazi, Call the Shunammite. So he called her and she stood before him. Elisha said to him, Tell her, You have gone to all this trouble for us. Now what can be done for you? Can we speak on your behalf to the king or the commander of the army? She replied, I have a home among my own people. What can be done for her, Elisha asked. Gehazi said, well, she has no son and her husband is old. Then Elisha said, call her. So he called her and she stood in the doorway. About this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. No, my lord, she objected. Don't mislead your servant, O man of God. But the woman became pregnant, and the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. My head, my head, he said to his father. His father told the servant, carry him to his mother. After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God, then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, Please send me one of the servants and a donkey so I can go to the man of God quickly and return. Why go to him today, he asked. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. It's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When he saw her in the distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. 
When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, but the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord, she said? Didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Elisha said to Gehazi, Tuck your coat into your belt, take my staff in your hand, and run. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not answer. Lay my staff on the boy's face. But the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the boy's face. But there was no sound of response, so Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, The boy has not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on the couch. He went in, shut the door, and the two of them he shut the door on the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy grew warmly, or the, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the bed and stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, Take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Elisha returned to Gilgal, and there was a famine in the region. While the company of the prophets was meeting with him, he said to his servant, Put on the large pot and cook some stew for these men. One of them went out into the fields to gather herbs and found a wild vine. He gathered some of its gourds and filled the fold of his cloak. When he returned, he cut them up into the pot of stew, though no one knew what they were. The stew was poured out for the men, but as they began to eat, they cried out, Oh, man of God, there is death in the pot, and they could not eat it. Elisha said, Get me some flour. He put it into the pot and said, Serve it to the people to eat. And there was nothing harmful in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread, baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked. But Elisha answered, Give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says, They will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to to the word of the Lord. So generally on a Sunday morning for the sermon, I try to begin with something contemporary from our lives. So you have some idea, you can make an early decision whether to pay attention for the rest of the sermon or whether to kind of drift off and think about something else that you got going on that day. So, you, you know, you want to start off with something that grabs people's attention. Some link to the contemporary situation, from the biblical, biblical situation to our contemporary setting. Now, I'm going to make a link, but not yet. Because the link's a little bit tricky in this case. And I, first we want to get into this passage, what their situation is, and what God is saying to them, so that there may be 
some chance of you accepting the link that I'm going to make later on. So first we'll look at their situation, and then what God says to them, and then we'll come take a look at our situation and compare it to theirs. Because our situation is somewhat different. So we want to see the parallels and contrasts. But first, you know, give me uh, eight minutes, and then we'll get into the contemporary relevance of it. So first, the situation they were facing. Now this, we're in the middle of a series here. First Kings, uh, second, where were we? First, second Kings chapter four. We're in the middle of a series. We've been preaching uh, a survey of the Bible from the very beginning. And the last few weeks have been, you know, first Samuel, second Samuel, uh, first Kings, and now we're into second Kings. We're going to be done with the Kings in just a little while, but it's a long discussion of politics. So the sermon that I'll give you one hint will be a, a little bit political. But within their, set, uh, within their setting, what we've had is a very dismal list, litany, of corrupt king after corrupt king. There was Jeroboam, there was Nadab, there was Basha, there was Elah, there was Zimri, there was Amri, and it goes on and on. And all the kings, the, the country now is in two parts, you know, ancient Israel split at some point. In the northern part, ten tribes became Israel, kept the name Israel. The southern had only two tribes. Now the southern part of the country had a couple of good kings along the way, maybe up to four. But the northern is unrelenting lists of bad kings, of corrupt kings. And so we read about the first king, Jeroboam. Jeroboam did not change his evil ways. But once more he appointed priests for the high places from all sorts of people. This was the sin of the house of Jeroboam that led to its downfall and to its destruction from the face of the earth. So Jeroboam was a terrible king. And then Nadab we read about next. Nadab the son of Jeroboam became king of Israel and he reigned over Israel for two years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord following the ways of his father and committing the same sin his father had. And then it's Basha. In the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, son of Ahijah, became king of all Israel in Tirzah, and he, he reigned 24 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the, uh, the ways of Jeroboam and committing the same sin Jeroboam from Israel had committed. And so the list goes on and on and on. One long, dismal litany of bad king after bad king. And then suddenly, Elisha comes into office, and we come to this passage. And, and as they faced all the, both Elijah and Elisha in addressing these bad kings, both Elijah and Elisha, you, what you have is a long litany of bad kings and angry prophets condemning the bad kings. First, Elijah threatens Ahab, and then Elisha comes into office and threatens Ahab's descendants. And so the whole lineage of Ahab is going to die off under Elisha's ministry. A long litany of bad kings. But suddenly, we have this chapter 4, which is nothing about kings at all, and nothing about bad people at all. Now, bad kings and precede, bad kings follow. Uh, prophets condemning bad kings precede, prophets condemning bad kings follows. And suddenly we have one chapter, totally out of character with the rest of the book, which tells five stories, not of kings, but of simple people. And not of bad people, but of 
common people facing difficult circumstances. And so in the first story, we read about uh, the widow of the prophet. You know, there was, a class, there was a group of prophets who were giving guidance to the people on how to worship God, giving them advice on how to direct their lives. And one of the prophets died, left a widow, and the widow was poor, and the children, uh, she had a couple of children. And she was in such debt that they were going to come and take her children as slaves in order to pay off her debts. So she cries out to Elisha for help. And then, while Elisha is conducting his ministry, as he travels from town to town, in one town, somebody who was more well-to-do invited him to stay, invited him for a meal, then invited him to stay in the house. And Elisha says, well, what can I do to help this woman? She says, I got everything I need. I'm okay. And then his servant said, well, wait a minute. She doesn't have a, she doesn't have a child. So Elisha promises her a child. And then, the next thing that happens, a few years later, the child's out in the fields working with his father. Suddenly he's got a violent headache. He goes back home, sits on his mother's lap, and he dies. And so she chases down Elisha saying, Look, I told you not to get my hopes up in the first place. You gave me a child, and now the child died. So again, common people facing difficult circumstances. And in the fourth episode, there's a famine. And the prophets have gotten together to have a meeting, you know, weekend conference, a retreat, like the Memorial Day retreat where all the youth are this weekend. They went together to have a retreat. It's a famine, and they're hungry. They've got to eat. So they make some soup, and all they got to, to put in the soup is some herbs, or as Americans say, herbs, to flavor the soup. And then some enterprising one of the prophets went out in the woods and gathered some gourds. Now, they didn't recognize the gourds. But they needed some kind of vegetable to eat. And these are worse than Chinese bitter gourds because, bitter gourds because they put these gourds in the soup and then the soup tasted poisonous. Or they were afraid they were going to die from it. So Elisha throws in some flour and the soup is okay. And then finally, somebody comes and brings, comes to visit Elisha and as a mark of respect brings him loaves, 20 loaves of bread. Now what they mean by loaf of bread here is one of these rolls, like a dinner roll, a one person roll. And there's over a hundred men there and however many children and, and women. And somebody brings Elisha 20 loaves of bread and he says, oh share this among all the people here. And he says, how can, how can I feed 100 people with food for 20 people? Very curious set of episodes here. Powerful kings who were bad before, powerful kings who were bad after, and suddenly just, you know, Elisha comes into office and suddenly there's these five little happy stories, eventually happy stories, not happy for the widow whose son died, but great for the widow whose son was resuscitated, happy stories about pretty well common people. What's the point? What's going on in all of this narrative? You know, this is what God says. What was the point of what God was saying to them? First of all, you can see some parallels between Elisha's ministry and Elijah, his predecessor. Elijah was a man of great spiritual power. And now Elijah has died and Elisha comes into office. And what's going to happen to the country now? And, and how is Elisha ever going to walk in Elijah's shoes? How is he ever going to be, lead the country the way Elijah did? So the first point this 
narrator is telling us. The first point that these stories make, and the reason the narrator tied them together is, while they're for common people, all of them involve uncommon events. All of them involve some level of miracle. The first story where the woman is dead and they're going to confiscate her children to pay off her debts, there was a miraculous supply of olive oil that kept filling jar after jar after jar, and eventually she had enough she could sell it and had enough to live and protect her children. The wealthy sponsor who invited him for meals and invited him to stay overnight gave her a room in her house. He gave her a child. Uh, the child dies, and Elisha comes in and resuscitates the child. Uh, there's a famine, and the prophets, not even the prophets have any food to eat. They make this kind of poisonous soup. And Elisha miraculously changes it into edible soup. They have uh, a big crowd of men, only 20 loaves of bread, only enough food for 20. And Elisha multiplies the bread so that everybody can eat. So the first message of this passage is that Elisha is as powerful as Elijah, that God is working miraculously through the ministry of Elisha, just as he had worked powerfully through the work of, and miraculously through the ministry of Elijah. And why this is important? For them it's important for historic reasons. Elisha is going to challenge the kings. He's going to challenge people with power to put him to death. He's going to challenge the top leadership of the country. He needs to know. The people need to know. Not just that he has miraculous powers, but that he has miraculous powers because God's at work in his ministry. God's blessing him and empowering him. So this is a very specific message for them at that time, that although Elijah has died, God has not grown silent. God is not absent. Elisha is in power, and through him God will reign, even despite the evil kings that they have. And so we see the parallels between Elisha and Elijah. Elisha had already um, fed starving people as Elijah had before him. Elisha resuscitated a woman's son from the dead as Elijah had before him. But then there's another message here, not just about the great power of Elisha. There's a message here about the heart of God. So much of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, and then 1 Kings and 2 Kings, is about kings and powerful people. Corrupt, but powerful. You could easily draw the impression that, that God cares for the elite. That God really cares about the powerful people. And he lost track of the common people. And then suddenly you have a whole list of common people here. A widow, a woman who has a spare room in her house, a boy who dies, prophets who are hungry, and a man who gives enough food to feed 20. Suddenly you have a, a variety of common stories, and all these stories tell us two things. One of us, one of the things they tell us, is they tell us about the common people who have a heart for God. See, the, the whole contrast is you've got powerful kings who care nothing about God. They lead the country not into worship of God, but into worship of other gods. And later on, you'll have more powerful kings who care nothing about God. But here in the midst, 
You've got simple, everyday, common people. Notable not for their power, not for their wealth, not for their wisdom, not for their influence, not for their international treaties, but notable only for this small thing about them. They love God. They worship God. They look after God's people and God's servants. That's all there is about them. And we see something else, though. What we see here is not just their heart for God, but what we see is God's heart for them. That God doesn't just care about the kings he's described so far. He doesn't just care about the kings he's going to describe later on. He doesn't care just about the leaders and the political authorities. What he cares about is his people, whether they're important or not whether they're influential or not, whether they're wealthy or not. He cares about his people. He cares about the widow whose husband died and left her deep in debt. He cares about the woman who has enough money to do well, to support children, but has no children to support. He cares about grieving widows whose sons die, grieving parents whose children die. He cares about people who are hungry, and don't have food to eat. The common people care about God, and God cares about the common people. The point of this chapter is, many of you will be familiar with the book of Ruth, and it's the same point. Ruth comes after the story of judges, and you've got one judge after another judge after another judge, and God raises up all these tremendously powerful, influential leaders, many of whom dishonor him. But then comes the quiet little book of Ruth, written at the same time. Ruth is not at all important, not at all significant. All she does was give her life to Naomi. Worship God, be faithful to people. The story of little people that God cares about, even in the midst of all the powerful people. Now, their setting then is different from ours in a big, major way. Now, here's our setting, or theirs, in contrast to theirs. In their setting, all the first kings condemning the wicked kings, uh, second kings condemning the wicked kings, the kings were expected, in their day, the kings were expected to lead the nation not only in God, not only in righteousness, but also in God's ways, not only sound judgment, not only sound politics, but also spiritually. The kings were expected to lead the nation not just economically or politically, but also spiritually. And our, we don't look to the president or the vice president or Congress, senator or the House. We don't look to our leaders for spiritual guidance, for spiritual integrity. So when God condemns them for being spiritually corrupt, there's a disconnect with today. God doesn't expect. We're not a theocracy. He does not expect our leaders to be spiritually mature leaders. That's not what he's calling us to be. This is more like, uh, this, parallel, this passage would be more relevant today, say in, in World War II, uh, Japan, when the emperor was the, considered the, the son of God. Or, theoretically, Queen Elizabeth. Remember all the trouble with Prince Charles got um, uh, divorced? And how can he lead the Church of England? At least in a formal sense, not in a proper sense, not in a full sense. But, but it really doesn't apply to us at that level. And yet I think it does apply to us at another level. And this is where the disconnect is that I want you to think about. 
we still deal with the issue of, um, we don't have spiritually corrupt kings, but we still deal with the issue of, hmm, at least rulers, or we still deal with the issue of political, not if, if not corruption, at least suspicion. We still have leaders that it's not always easy for us entirely to respect and follow who don't always govern the country in a way that's respectable. Maybe uh, you've heard recently about the news story about... Um, uh, the. I would like not to personalize this one, but it's hard not to mention names because of the details. But, you know, the, the Clintons have made... And I'm not particularly Republican. I don't... But the Clintons have made $25 million since January 14. The last year and a half, they made $25 million by giving speeches. They can get up to a quarter million dollars for a speech. Maybe even half a million dollars for a speech. Any of you pay a quarter million dollars to hear me speak? Would any of you pay a quarter million dollars to hear Jesus speak the Sermon on the Mount? And, uh, you know, the, the people are buying something else, don't you think? And when Hillary was Secretary of State and Bill Clinton got a $500,000 honorarium for a single speech from a country that had business before the U.S. government, well, at least there's something here a little bit dubious. Now, it's not just, it's not really about them at all. Here's the reality. The next presidential election will probably cost $1 billion to win. How's anyone going to collect, going to raise $1 billion to run for president unless you engage in some dubious practices? We still, we don't have, we don't expect our elite to lead us spiritually. But we would like it if they could lead us in financial, in fiscal responsibility. Beyond that, we have social structures, not elite individuals. The first example was about individuals. But we have social structures that are suspect, particularly social structures that are racially suspect. You see, this is a chart. I don't know how much of that you can see. You can at least see the graph lines, right? This is a graph. On the left is a comparison of... Uh, this is a graph of how people have fared since the Great Recession. How people have fared over the last few years by race. Sorry, Asians are not on this. You look at the top line, the red line, this is how whites have fared. You look at the bottom line, this is how blacks have fared. Notice how in the recession the white line is beginning to recover. All the black line has done since for the last five years or so is descend dramatically. So, medium net worth of households, white households now are, have about 13 times the wealth of black households. You look at this other line, and this is a comparison between white households and Hispanic households, about 10 times the wealth. We don't look to our leaders to guide us spiritually. So spiritual corruption is not an issue for us as we relate to our leaders. But maybe social structures that are corrupt or suspect on racial grounds should concern us. 
Maybe you saw the article today or yesterday, I forget which, about the recent incident or the trial of a policeman in Cleveland. We've had a lot of these issues coming up recently about the minorities, particularly black minorities and the police in the U.S. A policeman was recently found innocent of charges, but here is why he was on trial. Some uh, Two people were in a car outside a police station, an old beat-up car, and it backfired. A little explosion. So it sounded like a bullet, like a gun had fired. So the police start chasing, and for some reason nobody knows, this fellow did not stop when the police chased. He drove faster and tried to run away. The cars got up to 100 miles an hour, for 22 miles he ran. There was a dozen, um, a, a dozen police in chase of him. They fired, or was, um, over 100 bullets were fired at him. 49 from the one police officer who was charged. And the last 15 the police officer shot at the couple was standing on the hood of their car after they had stopped firing down through the windshield at them. You think 137 shots might be enough to stop a crook? If he was even a crook? I mean, they had criminal records. But you think about it. And it's not a statement about the police. It's not a statement about them. Or each of the victims was shot more than 20 times. But the, the officer was found innocent because they weren't sure who shot the bullets that killed him. Out of 137 shots, who, how are you going to know which ones are the ones that killed the guy? Now, this is not a statement about the police. Please understand this. You know, we talk about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder with our soldiers. I don't know how much thought we give to it with the police. And going into work every day, never knowing if you're going to get a shot. And then getting kind of excited in the midst of a chase and firing hundreds of rounds. But at the very least, we can say this. We have some systemic issues. And not corruption maybe, but at least some suspicion that there's some things here that aren't right at the higher levels of our social structure. We have other issues related to uh, social structure. We have social structures that are economically suspect. If you follow the news, you should have heard the initials TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership. And if you're in Massachusetts, you should hear this news, because Elizabeth Warren is arguing publicly with uh, uh, President Obama, even though they're from the same party, they're arguing publicly about this. And Obama says, well, he loves Elizabeth Warren, but she's ignorant on the facts on this one. Well, she has to be ignorant of the facts on this one because they're keeping it hidden. These are secret negotiations. And just this last week, one of the negotiators, one of the advisors on the TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, one of the advisors on this trade pact came out publicly and said, look, I can't tell you what's in it because I'm, uh, it's illegal for me to tell you what's in it. I'm sworn to secrecy. I could go to jail if I tell you what's in it. But he added... You should be worried about some of the details. So we've got, you know, and the reason why the TPP becomes so important is that back when NAFTA was ratified, some estimates are that 44,000 U.S. companies moved their headquarters overseas and their productions overseas. So you see the jobs are being lost. Who, who benefits from these trade packs? 
Certainly the elite, the investors, the corporate owners, the companies. But how about the rest of us? So we still, the issue is no longer spiritual corruption, but we still live in a world where the elites have certain advantages. And just one other example from the Great Recession is this uh, chart here shows what's happened with the recovery. The lower 93% in the economic recovery, maybe you're not feeling a lot wealthier now than you used to. In the uh, aftermath of the recovery, 4% decrease in average net worth of the per household of the lower 93%. The people who are recovered are actually the wealthiest 7% of the country. So they had systemic problems among the elite that were spiritual. We don't look to our leadership for spiritual uh, solutions. So, so our systemic problems are not spiritual. But the, you could argue that they're racial and they're economic. Now what does scripture say to us in the midst of this? First of all, again, remember what was the first point about Elisha? Elisha is just as powerful as Elijah. Elisha has the blessing of God. Eventually, Jesus comes. And Jesus comes, and he raises, resuscitates the son, the dead son of a widow. Jesus, like Elisha, like Elijah. Jesus comes. And he feeds a great crowd of people with bread. Just a few loaves and a few fishes. And they have enough left over to collect 12 baskets. Stories that are redolent of the Elisha and Elijah narratives. The first thing Elijah and Elisha do is point us forward to Jesus. They tell us what a servant of God will be like. The power he will have and the concern he will have for everyday people. They, they tell us also this, that God still cares about the common people. Jesus demonstrates that. So the first thing the Elisha story tells us is what Jesus will look like. Elisha gives us a small sample of what Jesus will look like when he comes. And then the message of this passage is again about the common people and in two respects. The first respect is that God still cares about the common people. Now, the question is, will God show us that through miracles? You know, I come from a tradition, I first became a Christian, a tradition that looked for miracles every day. But face it, in 2 Kings, 1 Kings, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, miracles were not an everyday occurrence. We can't tell all people who've suffered the death of their children that God will raise them now, resuscitate them. We can tell them God will raise them from the dead. We can't tell them God will resuscitate them. We can't tell all hungry people that God will feed them miraculously, as Elisha did or as Jesus did. But we can tell them that God cares about them, even though they're not important. We can also invite them to care about God. There's a story, or actually it's not a story, it's a real-life case, of a priest by the name of uh, Father Greg Boyle. has a ministry called Homeboy Industries out in the slums and barrios of Los Angeles. 
dangerous part of town. He got out there and found that people were suffering economically, and they were suffering because of the economics through gang violence. And really, the young men had very few prospects. They would join gangs, at least to get a little money for a short time. So what Father Boyle did was saw the need for jobs. So he's created some small program, a small business. And the business grew over time. It grew bigger and bigger over time. At the same time, so now they're employing about, they're employing thousands of, over the years, they've employed thousands of gang members, ex-gang members, ex-felons. At the same time, he's conducted dozens and dozens of funerals for some of the people that didn't make it out of the gangs. What it tells us is that this is often how God works today. God still cares for the common people, not just for the elite. And God invites us to care for the common people, not just the elite. God tells us that he cares for us if we're non-elite. From time to time, we'll each engage in little things. On occasion, as with Father Doyle, those little things will become big things. But they probably won't become miraculous. What Second Kings chapter 4 tells us, what the ministry of Elisha tells us, is that even in the midst of God's concern for the elite and how the elite govern, still God has time and energy left over for the rest of us. And what he does is invite us not to fuss so much about the corruption we see among the elite, but to care about the other common people in need in our midst. God cares for us so that we will care for others. That's basically the message of Second Kings 4. God cares for us who are not important and invites us to join him in his heart for others who are not important. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the example of Elisha. We thank you for the example of Jesus. We thank you for your own heart. That we might be less frustrated by what goes on among the elite and more mindful of what we can do to help those who are not elite. We ask you to be at work in our lives and through us and the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.